Thank you to each one of you for being here this morning. If you are a visitor, I encourage you to stop uh, me afterwards, shake my hand, and uh, tell me a little bit of your story. Uh, We also have a welcome basket, uh, a mug, that I'd like to give you. It tells you a little bit about our story as well. We like to give out the mug because it's an invitation to community and to your voice being important at our table as well. We've been in a series called Upside Down and Inside Out. If you have missed a Sunday or you know you're going to miss a Sunday, you can always log into iTunes or onto our website at www.eastpeatmc.org, and you can listen to our sermons online there. Also, I encourage you to check in on Facebook from time to time. We're always updating things there, and uh, it helps just spread the message and the mission of the church when you like a status or check in uh, and let us know that you were here. As many as you know, this new series for Lent has been called Upside Down and Inside Out. This morning, we're continuing our journey through the series. Uh, Lent is the solemn time leading up to Easter Sunday. It's traditionally a season in which we focus on prayer, repentance, atonement, and self-denial. It's story in this season, we remember the stories of Jesus and the path he walked leading up to his death by capital punishment. Last week, we explored Jesus' invitation to follow him into the kingdom through living a life that brings surrender. We looked at Mark 8 and Jesus' invitation to pick up our cross and follow him. This morning, we'll discover through the words of Paul, who was a follower of Jesus as well, how wisdom and the ways of this world were turned upside down and inside out by the cross for those who consider themselves followers of Jesus. The passage we're going to be focusing on this morning is Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians. And just to give you a little idea of what's going on at this time is Corinth is the major city of Greece. It's in between two major bodies of land. It's got its own two major bodies of water. They were trading as far as Asia and Italy. They were constantly shipping and importing from other places and other cultures. This meant there was a huge influx of influences into their culture. They were probably importing as much as they were exporting, much like we do. The influx of influences meant their city had developed a solid culture of influence on other places. It had arts. It had nightlife. They were people that were open-minded about their social and sexual exploitations. They had a high emphasis on wealth, education, and employment. Very few people were unemployed. Employment was great. There was a lot of jobs to do. If you didn't know what to do, you could work on the docks. There were always ships going in and out. One of the most important DNAs in their culture was achievement and gaining of wisdom. The gaining of wisdom. This is what Corinth loved. They loved to be people who were elite they wanted to be the, the, the smartest. They wanted to be the biggest. They wanted to be the brightest. They wanted to have everything they could know in their heads. And they wanted to experience everything, and they wanted to have an opinion on everything, and they wanted to be able to prove that their opinion was better than everyone else's opinion. It was in this city that Paul invested in a few disciples and developed a faith community of believers, the Church of Corinth. This faith community was mostly made up of Gentiles, in a city that was very cultured, very worldly, very powerful, and very progressive. The message of God, we'll learn, never jumps and jives well with cultures and societies built 
on this level of power and affluence. I have a friend of mine, he's not a believer, and he teaches in a school system. The other day he was teaching on philosophy, and he said, I wonder if Christianity can ever exist in a country or in an empire where power of achievement and wisdom rule. And I wrote to him, Matt, I don't think it can, and I also don't think it should. Paul saw that this culture was powerful when he first started discipling these early founders of the church in Corinth. In fact, we learn in Acts that Paul was actually nervous about the contrast of God's humble, powerful message versus the powerful culture that was at play in the city of Corinth. He was nervous about it. It drove him crazy. In fact, we see in the story of Acts 18, 9 through 10, that he actually cries out to the Lord. He presses into the Lord. He's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. I don't understand what's going on. This is a powerful culture. They're attacking me. They're after me. Am I even supposed to be here? Is this where you led me, Lord? The power and affluence was scaring Paul. The message of God never jumps and jives well with cultures and societies built on this level of power and affluence. In Acts 18, 10, 9 through 10, this is what we see Paul saying. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a, vi- in a vision. Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you. Because I actually have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Katie and I can relate to this experience of Paul. He's church planting. He's alone. He feels the power of the culture surrounding him. And he's just nervous. He's, he's not sure where God's leading. When Katie and I were church planting in California, there were many times that we felt like Paul. And we just had to press into the presence of God and say, is this what you want? Is this what you're doing? Show me signs. Allow your Holy Spirit to give me visions and words. Please just teach me what I'm supposed to be doing. Paul's alone and he sees the powerful, oppressive culture of affluence and wisdom. Much like that in which we experience in Southern California. We had to press into the Lord many times, as Paul does in this story of Acts. As a side note, ironically, in today's church culture, church planters are expected to live and die with their church plants. When we send a church planter away, we expect that they'll be there pretty much forever. Paul, in some of his church plants, never spent more than 48 hours. In the church of Corinth, we see that he ended up continuing there for a year and a half, so he's probably there for about two years. In all honesty, this is one of the longest places Paul spent church planning. It's one of the times that he was the most grounded in one place. Paul hears clearly from God in Acts. Stay there. Believe it or not, in that crazy culture that seems they have nothing but wisdom and affluence and, and uh, experience-seeking culture, I actually have people there. I have people that I want you to work with, I want you to partner with, I want you to start church with. That place that you think is lost, I actually have people working in. So Paul ends up staying there for close to two years. However, in this letter of 1 Corinthians, we find that he is a little disturbed as he's writing to those he's mentoring. We find the powerful culture of the surrounding society has now crept into the community. Paul has planted the church. He's told him the DNA of the kingdom. He's told him what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and he moves on. And all of a sudden, he starts hearing stories about the church in Corinth. 
he sees that something has gone wrong. He sees that the church has been infiltrated and diluted by wisdom, achievement, and experience. So he starts checking his Facebook, and he sees some of his disciples, and they're posting some stuff that is pretty off the wall. And he's thinking followers of Jesus shouldn't be saying stuff like that, right? Not that they have Facebook, but we can, we can pretend that this is how it would go down today. So at first, Paul's like, well, they've probably got hacked or clicked on a link they shouldn't have. And uh, that's why they're posting these, these things that just don't seem to jump and jive with the power of God and the kingdom of God. But the trespasses of the church of Corinth continue. And now Paul's upset, and Paul writes this letter, this, this letter of 1 Corinthians, and he's calling, 1 Corinthians, and he's calling them back to that original DNA of the kingdom, telling them this is the way it is. Said another way, the Greek lifestyles, learning, and philosophy had rubbed off on their, their Jesus-following neighbors. Red flags were raised all over Paul's mind. He's worried that everything is going to be lost. Paul then cries out to them. He begs them to see what is really happening. Paul greets them in 1 Corinthians and tells them to pump their brakes and check themselves. He tells them to seek Jesus in a way that will make them blameless at the end. Then he pleads with them. He sees them debating who is more achieved and more wise. Whose influence is better, Apollos, Jesus, Peter, who they call Cephas, Paul's, they're debating, who's the more elite, who's the more achieved, Menno Simmons, Martin Luther, or this guy over here? What source do we draw from? What stream? Ironically, these streams are still pretty prevalent today. So Apollos was an expiratory preacher. He was a messianic Jew who really loved the fundamentals of Scripture. He loved theology, and he loved to get people lost in that. So in some ways, he was our modern-day fundamentals. Then we have Peter, who would form the high church. He would be who, who the biggest influence on the Catholic church. Then we have the Christocentric people that would say following Jesus is more important than everything else. And then we have those who would be the evangelical church culture, those who say following Paul was the elite. He had the most understanding of what the kingdom is, so we need to follow Paul. So we have the Catholics, the evangelicals, we have the fundamentals, and then we have us Christocentric groups. These four groups that Paul is actually calling them out on are still very much alive today. So then Paul takes time to tell them, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you because the way you guys are debating about this and who baptized me, who taught me, who discipled me, who's more wise, he goes, I'm glad that my name can't be drugged through the mud with you. I'm glad that besides, and he names like three people, that I haven't baptized you because I wouldn't want to be part of your sense of achievement and elitism and your wisdom and your worldly way of thinking. I'm glad my name can't be drugged through that. Then he takes time to remind them this. My mission to you as a mentor, as a church planner, as a discipler, it was to deliver the gospel, the good news, the goodness of the kingdom, but not with the wisdom of words, for that would dilute and disarm the message and the cross of Christ. Through this letter, Paul begins to strip away his rights of achievement and wisdom. He actually writes very upside down. It looks like he's boasting, but if you really think about what he's saying, he's taking away everything. So he sees the church a mess, and instead of saying, 
you know, I'm the one that planted you. I'm your spiritual discipler. I'm the one that actually encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Instead of saying things that would show his own wisdom, his own authority, and his own achievement, he actually strips them away and says that would dilute the message to do that. I am actually appointing myself foolish, and I'm saying I am appointed fool to you. So instead of pulling up his wisdom and his achievement, he approaches them as a simple-minded fool. Paul argues as an appointed fool that the ways of the kingdom have turned everything we know, we think we know, upside down and inside out. That's where we pick up this story this morning. A place where Paul's audience is a group of people who feel they are out of place with a society around them. They are finding it difficult to follow in the footsteps of Jesus when they are surrounded by such critique. Listen closely to this passage as we read through it. Like the church in Corinth, we may find ourselves between two similar poles. Somewhere between the obligations of religious practice and the enjoyment and ease of blending in the world around us. I invite you to follow along with me as we read this passage. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the pew Bible in front of you. uh, And it's on page 1128. And it will also be on the screen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligent of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For since Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's a whole lot going on in this passage. We don't have time to look at and understand all the dynamics of the social, political, and historical aspects this morning. But let's look at this passage through our Lent lens. See, through the birth of Jesus, we got a glimpse of who God is and the way his kingdom broke through in the here and the now. Through the life of Jesus, we get a glimpse of God's kingdom and the way we are to live as citizens of it. Through the ministry of Jesus, we caught a glimpse of his power of the kingdom and the compassionate nature of God. But this morning we take a glimpse at the cross, a message that is not about eternal life as much as it's about a way that God chose for his kingdom to turn everything in this world upside down and inside out, including what makes us wise and achieve. If you have a bulletin with you, you'll see that there are some points in which there are blanks and you can fill out and follow along. But I think there's eight things that we can take away today. I think there's things in this passage that apply to us, even though it's Paul writing to the church of Corinth. In some ways, I think we're in a very similar position. And so I encourage you to follow along. I encourage you to uh, fill out the the, uh, underlined areas there as we go along. The simple message of the cross is lost when it's taught with the worldly power of wisdom and elegance. Do we have that slide? 
The simple message of the cross is lost when it's taught with the worldly power of wisdom and elegance. Sometimes we feel that we need to have a substitute power for God. Sometimes we we think that uh, we need to prove God exists. We have a multi-million dollar uh, industry that's built around apologetics. We also have um, this idea that when the kingdom wins somebody of fame over, we need to really brag about that. We really need to say, look Look who we've got. Look who we've achieved. And this continues to happen today through many uh, church groups, not just Protestants, but as well as evangelicals and charismatics. Soon as somebody of fame comes to, to faith, we have to let everyone know. There's a, uh, a band that's in mainstream. They're, they were known for their ability to, you know, be worshipers of Satan, and all of a sudden two of them become Christians, and the charismatic circles see that they experience the Holy Spirit, and now these guys become trusted authorities, and it, because they are achieved in the world, they're millionaires who were everything that we're not, and all of a sudden they encounter God. So Christianity Today does an interview, a DVD comes out about them, and blah, blah, blah. Soon as something happens with people in power and achievement, we want to brag about it. Why? Because apparently we don't think God can speak for himself. We don't think that the power of the Holy Spirit is enough to go on. So we substitute power for God. And that's what your first point is about. The simple message of the cross is that when it's taught with worldly power of wisdom and elegance is lost. The power of the kingdom was on the cross. Our faith depends on understanding that moment and not what causes other people to come to it. Second point is this. Followers of Jesus will find power and meaning for their lives in the message of the cross. Followers of Jesus will find power and meaning for their lives in the message of the cross. Our achievement isn't to be measured by wisdom and by what we gather or what we achieve in this life through our jobs and through who our relatives are or what our church does or what programs our church has or what we can do as a church. But it all comes down to finding power in the lives, uh, in our lives through the message of the cross. To be achieved by understanding what happened at the cross and not just this idea that because of what happened on the cross, we can now be achieved. The message of the cross will make no credible sense to those who are not following Jesus intimately. Somewhere along the line in Christendom, and especially in Western America, we felt that it was a really good idea for the church to get involved politically. We felt it was really good for us to try to teach people our convictions Uh, which they might be right convictions, they might be truthful things, but we thought it was our right to teach the world those things. To not only teach them, but to use our relationship with power and with authority and with the wise politicians to actually mandate it. So we've tried to mandate marriage. We have tried to mandate uh, abortion uh, regulations. We have tried to mandate what we know to be 
life of the kingdom. However, Paul is telling us that the power and the message of the kingdom on the cross will make no credible sense. It will make no credible meaning to those who are not following Jesus intimately. In other words, we are going to sound foolish when we say things of the kingdom to people who are not in the kingdom. So why do we waste so much effort talking about things of the kingdom instead of introducing people to the kingdom? Why do we spend so much time complaining about movies that are coming out and the way the society is going instead of just telling people about the power of the Holy Spirit? So we can talk about what our convictions are and post it everywhere, but at the end of the day, unless we're doing the same amount of effort on teaching people about the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the cross, it's pointless. People who are not following Jesus intimately will not be able to understand things of the kingdom. Ironically, when he says in this passage, who are the wise, where is the philosopher, he's actually poking fun at the church of Corinth. He's actually saying, look around yourselves. None of those people that you actually think are wise and achieved are actually in your setting. None of the philosophers or the teachers, they are not in your setting. They don't get the things of the kingdom. Don't lose your understanding that you are fools. Following Jesus requires a posture more like a simple-minded fool than a masterfully achieved guru, scientist, or theorist. For years, church hated education. I'm not asking that we return to that point. But then we somewhere off-balance that and become into a place where education is everything. We need to have our own spiritual gurus and scientists. And uh, we need to be able to make sure that they can hold credible weight in the water of the world. We need to make sure our scientists can match up to the world's scientists. We need to make sure that our philosophers can argue with the Aristotles and the Plato's of our gener- our world. Somewhere it's, again, we're substituting for the power of God. Instead of letting God speak for himself, we are becoming wise and achieved and trying to mandate what we believe for others. God continues to move undetected by the philosopher turning who is wise in this world upside down and inside out. Spend all this money trying to prove the existence of God, but how many people besides one or two here and there does it actually lead to the kingdom? God continues to move on detective by the philosopher. For a philosopher who is smart and wise and reading all these things and seeking, we're still not finding them turn to God. Why? Because things of this world... And things of the kingdom are two different worlds. And they will not understand each other. It was the simple-minded who saw God reveal himself through the teachings of Jesus and not the world's elite and brightest. For the Gentiles, it was the people who worked for the politicians as slaves. That's who picked up on the message of the kingdom. For the Jewish people, when Jesus taught and spoke, it was the poor, the lepers, the people that couldn't speak. It wasn't the rich young rulers. It wasn't the teachers of the law. It wasn't the philosophers. Same, same reality in both worlds. It's the foolish that understand what the kingdom is doing. Our, our mission and message is simply proclaiming Jesus and the message that he defeated death and all things on the cross. This is the simplicity of who we are. 
Somewhere along the line, we create this evolution process of faith, and we say, we start as a baby, and we were fools then, but God wants us to become gurus by the time that we're dead, right? So somewhere along this time, we, we've got to achieve something in our wisdom. Our mission and message is simply this. And this is why Paul strips himself down and says, I'm nothing but a fool. He doesn't show his wisdom. He just says, our mission and message is simply this, proclaiming Jesus and the message that he defeated death and all things on the cross. It's easy for us to look at that line and think we understand it. But that reality goes so much farther in a way that we will never understand in this life. And our last point is this. Without the power of the Holy Spirit... We cannot proclaim a message that is triumphant enough for the religious and wise enough for those who are not. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we, uh, like Jesus, could not be triumphant enough for the politicians, for the wise gurus, the spiritual leaders, the church, the believers, the God-fearing people. He wasn't a triumphant enough Messiah for them. We're not going to be a triumphant enough church for them either. And for those that are seeking wisdom, if we don't have the philosophers and they don't understand our kingdom DNA, then we're never going to be wise enough for them either. Our message is for the fool. Paul stripped himself of his power and his point and appointed himself as a fool. He called the wayward and withering church in Corinth that was fighting for wisdom, elitism, and credibility and achievement in the world. To do the same as what he did. To shed it off and become a fool. Following Jesus in this level of simplicity calls us all to be appointed fools. Followers of Jesus are called to live and, like, live and love like him in the simplicity of the message. As foolish as it may seem. Both to those that are religious. Those in the church. And those in the world. We have all through this story been appointed fools. In closing, I want to tell you a quick story as the worship team comes forward. John Wimber, the starter of the vineyard, he got saved in the 70s. He, uh, he was um, in the 60s in this band called the Righteous Brothers. He wrote this song called, You Lost That Loving Feeling, Now You're Gone, Gone, Gone. You guys have probably heard it, right? So John Wimber, he and his wife turned to faith only because they're at the end of the rope. They're, they're having problems in their marriage. He's at a part where life is hard for him. So he starts to head to Vegas to borrow some money from his friend who's a drug dealer. So he goes there and he sees this guy walking down Vegas and he's got a sandwich board sign on it. And it says, I am a fool for Christ on the front. And when he sees the guy turn around, it says, but whose fool are you? In which case, John Wimber said, he laughed out loud, said, what a religious fanatic. That is not what I want. No way. So years later, he encounters the power of the Holy Spirit in a message about the cross. He falls down flat. And what image comes back to him as he encounters God? Just the backside of that sign. Whose fool are you? We can be wise or we can be a fool. It's kind of a fork in the road and we get to choose which way we go.